All right, good morning, Mission Church, or a remnant of Mission Church today. Um, we are extremely glad you're here. Pastor Eric can say the planets aligned all he wants. I'm sure he just announced that I was preaching one more time and everybody got an impromptu vacation. So I see who my true friends are. Thank you for being here. If you're listening on the recording, I'm talking to you for not being here. But no, I, I do appreciate all of you being here. I'm excited to be here. Uh, I do want to say thank you real quick to Pastor Eric and to all of you for allowing me to be away for a week. I got to go home, home and preach uh, at my dad's church to a lot of people that knew me when I was born, literally. So uh, a lot of family, friends, a lot of people that poured into me as a young child. And it was, it was really cool to go there and do that and kind of show them that what they did was not in vain uh, and that what, what they poured into my life, that God brought fruit and things like that. So it was, it was great, but it's also great to be actually home. And this is, where, this is where I call home. This is my church family. So thank you for letting me go. Absence really does make the heart grow fonder, I guess. I'm glad to be here. So thank you all for gathering this morning. I pray you have all come uh, expecting God to move in this place as we have and as we have prayed this week. So uh, as Pastor Eric said, we will be continuing through the book of Matthew. If you want to turn there, it's chapter 8. It's verses 18 through 22. We have just finished the Sermon on the Mount a couple of weeks ago, and now we are looking kind of at the rest of Jesus' ministry, much of which is uh, comprised of healings, as we looked at last week, preaching the gospel, traveling around, calling disciples, making disciples, and just overall showing, living, and preaching the gospel as he goes. So this week we will continue to look at that. And what we see here uh, before we read this, this scripture is a crowd forming around Jesus. Now, reading through, if you read it straight through instead of kind of piecemeal each week like we preach it, is it seems like it might be the same crowd or at least a lot of the same crowd that have just, he's been up on the mountains preaching and they've just kind of come with him. Like it's kind of like the paparazzi is, is just following him along and they've got their eye scrolls out. Eye scrolls, nobody, Apple, us, no. Okay, they've got their, their they want to get his autograph. They want to be with Jesus. They, he's, he's just become almost just famous. Not because of him being the Messiah. It's just he's spoken with authority, as we have just looked at a couple of weeks ago, and they, they seem to be drawn to him. So a lot of people are following him, and it seems that Jesus kind of wants to get away. We see this many times throughout Scripture where Jesus wants to get away and, and be alone with God, to pray, to, to gather his thoughts maybe, to, to make his plans for his next move, whatever it may be that he's doing, but he, he just wants to get away and be with God himself. And it seems that this is what is happening here, and they're not exactly letting him. So before he is able to get away to the other side of the water, as, as we see here, Two men approach him, or they're in the crowd, or he approaches them, whichever. But he has this interaction with these two men, and that's where we'll pick up reading. So if you would, stand with me one more time uh, as we read God's Word this morning. We will be reading Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 22, and we will move from there. So Matthew eight eighteen. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up to him and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me 
and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for another chance to gather, to parse your word, to look into your words. And I pray that that is what is spoken here this morning, that you would move me out of your way, uh, that I would decrease and that you would increase, and that these words would be your words and not my opinions or what I think, but that it would simply be you speaking through me as your filter to the, the ears and the hearts of everyone gathered here. I pray for everyone here listening that they would be focused on you from the youngest to the oldest in the room, that they, would, that they would even sense your presence and know that your spirit is here with us, guiding us as we speak, guiding us as we listen, all of those things. And I just pray that you would move in this place, that you would drive us towards mission, towards your mission, and that we would put you first and foremost above all things in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so... The thing is, is as you read that, this is a pretty straightforward text. There's not a lot of quote-unquote interpretation that we have to do. It is just application of, okay, what does it mean when Jesus says these things in 2016? It basically means the same thing, but obviously times have changed. That doesn't mean they don't apply. It just means they apply in a different way in our context. So we will look at that some, but if you are paying attention to the heading that is before verse 18, that obviously was not in the original scripture but was added later but if you were paying attention it probably said something in your bible to the effect of the cost of following jesus or the cost of discipleship or something to that effect so that is what we are are going to look at today is the cost of following jesus now i've heard similar texts to this preached taught in bible studies and in lots of different ways presented and almost every time you hear it preached, you hear that following Jesus is the biggest price that you can pay. It is the biggest sacrifice you can make. It is the most costly decision that you can ever make. And today, I'm going to contend with you that it is not the biggest price you can pay, that it is not the biggest sacrifice that you can make, it is not the most costly decision that you can make. But we will get back to that in a few moments. But first, let's look at what is being asked of us to be followers of Jesus. What is Jesus saying it takes to follow him? Now, the beauty of this text is I could have preached from lots of different texts in the New Testament and preached this exact same sermon. The cost of discipleship or the cost of following Jesus is all over the New Testament. It, the exact same text is in Luke chapter 9, where we see this exact same conversation with these two men. There's one more added, so there's three men. But either way, the exact same words. Foxes have holes, birds have nests, son of man has nowhere to lay his head. All of those things are still recorded. So that's twice we hear the exact same story. But we also see in Matthew 16, 24 through 26, and Luke 9, 23 through 27, Jesus says that anyone that comes after him will have to take up their cross to be worthy of being his disciple. We will preach through that in a few weeks months when we get to Matthew 16 and we will look at exactly what he is saying there but we see another instance of the cost that is associated with following Jesus Matthew 10 and Luke 14 Jesus says that in comparison to the love that you have for me the love you have for everything else better look like hate it should be that much difference because you should love me so much more than again we will get there in Matthew 10 
John 12, 25, anyone who loves his life on this earth will lose it. Anyone who hates his life on this earth will gain it for eternal life. 1 Peter 4, do not be surprised at the fiery trials. 1 John 3, do not be surprised when the world hates you. John 16, 33, you will have tribulation. Philippians 1, 29, if you're writing any of these down, Philippians 3, 9 through 11, 1 Thessalonians 3, 3 and 4, Matthew 24, 9, I could go on literally the whole time I have here just listing scriptures that say this same thing. Jesus must come first. It is blatantly laying out the cost of following Jesus. And spoiler alert, none of them are pleasant. None of them are like, woohoo, I can't wait to do that. That sounds great. I'm going to do that on my free time whether I follow Jesus or not. None of those things, they're not pleasant. Picking up your cross is not something that we want to sign up for for any other reason is what Jesus is saying. We wouldn't do this, but for him we will. And that's what he is saying. He is saying that following me comes with a huge price, an enormous sacrifice, and there are no exceptions. So you can't read those scriptures and go, well, that doesn't apply to me. That applies to everyone else. I am not going to be called to make that sacrifice. There are no loopholes. There are no exceptions. It doesn't say most disciples will be called to do this or most followers will be asked of this. All of us, every person that decides to follow Jesus in any way, shape, or form and be his disciple pays these prices, does, does, makes these sacrifices. Clearly, and without question, if you read all of those scriptures, there can be nothing, nothing put ahead of following Jesus. Doesn't matter what you fill in that blank with, nothing can go ahead of Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a book. Uh, he was martyred for his faith in 1945 by the Nazis. Um, Christian man, born in Germany, became a follower of Christ, was martyred uh, in 1945, but wrote quite a bit, uh, wrote a lengthy book called the Cost of Discipleship. It's a great book. Highly recommend it. But in it, he says, Discipleship can tolerate no condition which might come between Jesus and obedience to him. The followers of Jesus, for his sake, renounce every personal right. If, after giving up everything else for his sake, they still wanted to cling to their own rights, they would have ceased to follow him. Now, while this isn't the words of the Bible, I think this is 100% biblically accurate. I think by reading Scripture, we can see that this statement that he is making is true. It is very clear as you read through the New Testament that Jesus and obedience to him must come first because of, and what we've studied in the past weeks, because of who he is, because of the authority with which he speaks. We must follow him first and foremost and allowing anything at all, even if it's a good thing, to come between us and, and him is sinful. It cannot happen to be a true disciple. And if it does happen, it may mean that you aren't following Jesus anymore. Or it could mean you never started following Jesus to start with. That's not for me to decide. But Bonhoeffer makes clear here, and the Bible makes clear here, that it, Jesus first, everything else second or farther down the list. Bonhoeffer wrote as well when Jesus calls a man he bids him to come and die again while not words in the Bible exactly I think we can clearly see especially when Jesus says take up your cross daily what else is a cross used for it's not a necklace and a picture on the wall like we've used it for not saying that's wrong but back then that's not what it would have meant 
Back then, we wouldn't have thought of jewelry. They would have thought of a death machine because that's what it was. And he's saying, pick up your cross. So he's saying to die. So when Bonhoeffer writes the words, Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. It is 100% based on what he reads in the Bible. Jesus calls us to die to ourselves, our wishes, our ambitions, our desires, our wants, our everything. If in any way it conflicts with his word, obedience to him, or following Jesus the man. But we hear things like this as we have left our air-conditioned home to get in our air-conditioned car to drive to an air-conditioned building to sit in chairs that are pretty comfortable, padded seats, to sing a few songs where no one is going to stop us from singing those songs and no one's going to stop me from preaching these words today, to do all of that in reverse, to leave this air-conditioned building, to go to our air-conditioned car, to go back to our air-conditioned house. And a lot of us think, there's my suffering, given my time, I've sang my songs. I listened to somebody preach longer than he said he was going to preach. It took too long, but I suffered for Christ and listened and stayed awake. And we think that this is as much suffering as we need to sign up for to follow Jesus. See, but Jesus has called us to something more. It is, it is I want to say American, but westernized Christianity that may, has made this the standard of Christianity. It is only in America and maybe a few other places where we seem to be offended by the message Jesus come, calls a man to come and die. Nowhere else would they really be offended by that message. Telling us in America that we can't have Jesus as almost an addendum to the American dream is what offends us. We want this. Jesus can be a part of that. And that's not what Jesus is calling us to. He is saying, I am everything. Sometimes you get this. American dream or whatever you want to call it and sometimes you don't but either way you are going to have to suffer in whatever context you're in and that doesn't mean driving to an air-conditioned building and spending an hour worshiping him per week not that you shouldn't do that that can't be the whole of our suffering is what he is saying you see elsewhere in the world it's just expected they know if they sign up for faith in Jesus, something bad is going to happen. They know they may have to suffer. They know they may be ostracized. They know they're definitely going to be mocked and ridiculed, maybe disowned by their family, possibly killed, possibly by their own family. This week at uh, the program Living House, I love working there. It gives me the sermon illustration every time I preach. But at Program Living House, uh, one of the men that teaches a Bible study there, he's an older man. I think he's 83, still comes and teaches these men the, the Bible. Uh, he spent about 30 years in Middle Eastern countries um, for in the 70s. So this, this whole Muslim outreach thing is not new. People have been doing it for years. It's just we hear about it more because the Internet. So he's been doing this for years. He's since moved back to the States, obviously. But... He brought one of his friends with him who is from Saudi Arabia and Pakistan. He's lived both of those places. His dad was from one. His mom was from the other. Cannot remember which. But his parents are from there, and he's lived there the majority of his life. He was Muslim the majority of his life. He's 21 years old now. He's been in the States for two years. Now, before he was able to leave the States, someone shared the gospel with him. Now, I don't know. He didn't fully come to believe the gospel right then and there, but he was very intrigued by the message of the gospel. This is what we see a lot of times in, in Muslims is they hear this for the first time and they may not believe it right away, but a lot of times they, they're just very intrigued by what you're telling them because it's so far from what they have already studied or learned. 
So he was very intrigued by this message. He went, kept going back to the same person that was sharing the gospel with him, talking with him, asking questions, all these things. And he came to believe, at least for the most part, uh, what we would call a Christian. Well, his parents caught word that he was even toying with this idea, and obviously they were not happy. So just before he was leaving to come to America, they literally made him sign a binding document to say the only way you can go to America is if you swear that you will not follow this Jesus. That's the only way we're going to allow you to leave. So he, being new in his faith, not knowing what to do, thinking it was best to come, signed the document, and he came to America. Now that document may have seemed like it was for his protection, and to a degree I think it was, but much of that document was for his family's protection so that when someone came to them and said, you let your son follow Jesus, they can be like, no, I got a document that says we told him specifically not to do that. Um, so it was for protection of everyone. But he's been here two years. He has completely broadened his faith in Jesus. He is very much a Christian who just wants to share the gospel with people. And his visa is about to run out. His parents don't want him back because they know that he is broken his covenant with them or his document they don't want him there he's basically dead to them um, and he goes this week to ask the American government if he can stay here for asylum because he is very much worried if he goes home they're going to kill him maybe not his family but someone is going to kill him for his faith in Jesus so he's asking to stay here but he said the words and he said this very resolute. It was almost like he was talking about like sports or his favorite restaurant. He wasn't super emotional about it. He was probably less emotional than I'm even seeming right now. He was very just, just talking about it. And he said, but if I do not get asylum and I have to go back home, I'm sure God's will will be done in that as well. Basically saying if they kill me, to live as Christ and to die is gain. It was very refreshing and convicting at the same time to hear this man talk about it. Because I'm not sure in his shoes that I'd be like yeah just send me home it's fine I'd be begging to stay here and he is asking to stay but he's okay if he has to go home and face what he thinks will be his eventual death why though it has to be because he's read the scriptures because this is what is expected he knew this going in he counted the cost he weighed the cost of following Jesus and he decided that it was worth it he heard that it may be required of him to give his life for this and he was willing to do it anyway Jesus was worth it because Jesus had died to save him Jesus had lived the life that he should have lived he died the death that he deserved and because of that he is willing to give his life literally his life for it you see it is only in America where we not only do we not expect this kind of treatment but we get offended when we are told we should expect this kind of treatment oh you how dare you say that? That's not what Jesus has Jesus has called me to a full and abundant life, which is in Scripture, so it sounds good. But we've twisted what that means, and we've twisted it to, to say the opposite of what Jesus said over and over and over again. But this young man's story, it simply reiterates what Jesus' goal is, what Jesus was trying to do. It is being carried out to this day by his disciples that he instructed to do this even in places where it's most dangerous to do so but Jesus primary goal in the gospel of Matthew and in 2016 and everywhere in between is to make disciples of himself 
to make disciples of Jesus. This is why he came. Yes, he came to die, but in the process, he was coming to make disciples that would follow him unto death, that would follow him because of his death, that would follow him because of his resurrection. He came to make disciples. And this is why he tells us to truly count the cost, to weigh the cost, to make sure what you are deciding to follow, that you know what you are following. But if you look closely at Jesus' ministry and throughout the Gospels, there's lots of stories, obviously, of Jesus. You, you kind of, if you read it from an objective point of view, you'd go, really? Are you sure he's trying to make disciples? Because sometimes it looks like he's running them off. Uh, we, we see a running theme in the Gospels. Jesus will teach or, or speak or do some kind of miracle or heal someone or do something and the crowds gather. Man, we want to follow you, Jesus. And he's almost like, you sure? I don't think you do. Let me tell you why. And then he says something almost crazy like this, and a bunch of them leave. And it seems like he's running those people off. It seems like Jesus doesn't want to make disciples, but what Jesus is trying to do is make informed, devoted disciples so that he, he knows, or that they know what the cost is associated with following him. He wants people that have counted the cost and valued him above that cost and then followed him. He doesn't want them to be surprised a year from now when something bad happens because of their faith and go, whoa, nobody told me. He tells them right up front. When Steph and I were engaged, we went through marriage counseling. I won't name the counselor's name, but the first thing he said to us was, I'm going to spend the next few weeks trying to talk you out of marrying each other. Immediately I was like, uh, why would you do that? And he, he said, because if you can be talked out of it now, you shouldn't do it to start with, which... I've now married one couple and I did the exact same thing. I'm going to spend a few weeks trying to talk you out of getting married for that very same reason. And it's true. This is what Jesus is saying and doing here. He's not turning people away. He's not telling them to not follow him. He is simply saying that this is what it takes to follow me. And if you can be talked out of it now, there's no point in even starting. There's no point in faking it. There's no point in beginning something you're not going to finish you see, if I go into any, if any of us go into any store in the world, doesn't matter what you're going to buy, you go to an item, I like that item, I want to buy this item. You look at the price tag and you say, don't want to buy that item, I'm not paying that price for whatever the item is, and you decide to leave the store without the item, that store did not keep you from shopping there. No one in the world would say that they disallowed you to shop there. It is simply you were not willing to pay the price and you decided to leave the item in the store. The same thing here. Jesus is not driving these people away. He is letting them know the price before they get to the cash register. He is still trying to make disciples even when he's seemingly driving them away with these statements because he wants them to know the truth beforehand. You see, Jesus is essentially building an army and he only wants those who are truly ready to fight and aren't going to tuck tail and run when the bullets start to fly because as we've read in scriptures over and over the bullets are going to fly now sometimes those will be physical bullets sometimes they will be figurative bullets but they're coming for all of us in some form fashion or the other they are coming J.C. Ryle says nothing has done more harm to Christianity than the practice of filling the ranks of Christ's army with every volunteer who is willing to make a little profession, pray a prayer, or talk fluently of experience. You see, we look at all these people coming and saying they want to follow Jesus as a good thing, and it is. If a hundred people had shown up to mission today that we weren't expecting, 
that would have been a very good thing. We would not have asked them to preach next week. We would have vetted them just like, maybe, depends on who they were. But we would have vetted them just like Jesus is doing and told them, hey, this is what Mission Church is about. This is what Jesus is about. You may have wandered in here not knowing where you were, but we want to make sure you know what you have wandered into. The same thing Jesus is doing here. But see, too many times in American churches, they'll accept anyone for any reason that has come through the doors who makes a half-hearted, ill-informed profession of some kind of maybe some genuine faith somewhere in there. It pads their numbers. It gives them more money in their account. It shows, gives them notoriety to the world, and they're willing, hey, come on in. Not that you shouldn't accept people through the door, but you be truthful about what door they have stepped through. This is why Christianity in America is so watered down and diluted. So many people who call themselves believers are only saying they are believers because someone has told them wrongfully a half-truth about what it takes to be a believer. So they think they are one, even though they're doing nothing of obedience, they're doing nothing of putting Jesus first in their life, they're doing nothing that Jesus has called us to do. See, these two men we read about in Matthew come from two different perspectives. One fervently kind of seeks Jesus out. You see him coming to Jesus saying, Hey, you, I'll follow you wherever you go, wherever you want me to go. And Jesus says, Okay, I'm homeless. I have nothing. You see what I'm carrying? That's what I own. I got nothing. I got these sandals and this purple robe, apparently, because every picture you see of Jesus, he's wearing the purple robe. He probably wasn't. But this is all I got. And if you want to have nothing as well, because what you may own right now may be taken away from you. It might not. You may get to keep it. But I'm just telling you, there's a definite possibility that all the things you own right now, you will not own after you follow me. The other guy, it seems, it seems like Jesus said, asked him to follow him. In Luke, it kind of alludes to that Jesus went to him and said, hey, follow me. And the guy made an excuse. Oh, hey, whoa, let me go bury my father first. And Jesus says, I... You leave that to the dead. Let the dead bury their own dead. And we kind of read that in today's context and go, man, can't, can't somebody just go to a funeral first? Like, it's kind of a big deal. And what we fail to realize is that this man's dad probably was not dead. The reason we know that to be true is because back then, when someone died, they were pretty much buried that day. Within a few hours of their death, they prepared the body, they did all of the rituals, they did all of the things, they buried him. The fact that this man was even talking to Jesus and not attending to funeral stuff, whether it was attending the actual funeral or just getting it ready because the kids would have been very much responsible for getting the parents ready for that, the fact that he's even talking to Jesus implies that his dad is still living. Now, he may be in bad health, he may be on his deathbed, but there's no guarantee he's going to die tomorrow or 15 years from now. We don't know. And the guy's saying, as soon as that happens, I'm with you. As soon as this one thing, I'll take care of it, I'll wrap it up, and I'll go with you. And you see, we, we look at that and we think, well, that seems silly. The, obviously, he has no idea when his dad's going to pass away. Why doesn't he just follow him, and then Jesus might let him go home and take care of that or, or you know, whatever. We, we think the excuse sounds silly until we think of excuses we have heard. Wait till I finish college, then I'll follow Jesus. Got to spread my wild oats. Keep it PC, PG for the kids in here. But till I get a good job out of college, right? Till I get settled, not bouncing around everywhere. Uh, get married. You know, I want, a, I want a marriage based in church. We'll start going to church and we'll, we'll get our lives together. Wait till I have kids. I want to raise my kids that way. Wait till uh, the kids leave for college. Wait till I retire. Wait till... 
Jesus knows that any excuse will do if we're willing to make excuses for why he doesn't come first. And as soon as one excuse goes away, something else will come in and take its place. So this guy may have, his dad may have died the next day, but something, well, okay, now that that's over, let me do this or do this. Any excuse will do when we're making excuses as to why Jesus can't come first in our lives. And Jesus is not allowing room for that from the get-go. You see, now, we are never told whether these men ultimately made a decision to follow or not. It doesn't say that they went away with their heads tucked and, you know, down looking at the ground. They may have chosen, they may have gone, oh, good point, I'm still with you. And I think, well, I know that God left that part out on purpose out of the scriptures because now not knowing whether they did or did not makes us ask the question, well, what would I have said? If that was me and Jesus was telling me, follow me, even though I have no home, foxes have, have, have holes, birds have nests, I have nothing, or let the dead, how would I have reacted? Would I have followed him? See, so this is where we get very practical. We need to ask ourselves a few questions to truly gauge where we are. Because here's the thing. I don't want anyone to leave here thinking that I am telling you that God is telling you to give all your stuff away and be homeless. Or that going to a funeral would be a bad thing. Or any of those things. I also don't want you to leave here and think that God isn't telling you those things. Because he might be. I don't know. This is not a decree that every Christian has to give all their stuff away. We even see in other parts of Scripture where Jesus only asks for half of the rich young ruler's stuff, right? Or Zacchaeus only has to pay back what he owes. He doesn't have to give everything away. This is not a poverty gospel. But he might. He might call us to give our stuff away. He might call us to leave our families and friends. So uh, the questions we have to ask ourselves is, first, do I truly treasure Christ above all things? It's easy to just go, yep, I sure do, until you really start thinking about your life. It's easy to pretend we would give all of our money away if God truly asked us to do that. But what if he told you to give up your kids or your family like the young man from Pakistan or Saudi Arabia? He has no family anymore, biologically speaking, because he gave it up for Jesus. Because they are not followers of Jesus and they want to basically kill him for it. He was willing to give that up. What if he asked us to give up our freedoms? We live in a free country. What if he asked us to move to a country that is not free? Some of us, that is our God. Our freedom is our God. What if he asked us to give up our comfortable life or our routine or our lucrative job? You fill in the blank with whatever you want there and wait until your stomach gets queasy thinking about giving whatever that is up. And there you go. That's your answer to, uh-oh, I may be putting this above Jesus. See, we have to ask ourselves, am I willing to give away the stuff I can afford to lose? Or am I truly willing to give away anything for Jesus? things that I'll never get back, time, our lives, things we can't regain. We can make more money. Sometimes it's easy to write a check. But are we willing to truly treasure Christ enough to live an entirely different way to honor him? Second question, am I willing to die for what I believe? This goes right hand in hand with the first question. Now sometimes I, I think about what if a guy came in here with a gun, put it to my head and said, all right, renounce your faith in Jesus or I'm going to kill you. And I really honestly do believe that I would say no because that would be over quickly. It'd go out on a real high note. So when I got to Jesus, I'd be like, <laughs> see what just happened, the reason I'm here? 
yeah, you should probably let me in. Cause I, so that's, that's over quickly, and I hope that's true of all of us. I hope that's true of me. I hope, that, I hope it never happens. But if it were to happen, I hope all of us would know for sure that we would say, I'm sorry, I can't do that. You're going to have to shoot me. But that seems a lot easier than living a life not knowing whether you're going to die the next day because of your faith. Every day looking over your shoulder. Every day walking into the fray willing to say, you know what, today might be the day I might get tortured and killed for my faith. But it might not be, and I'm still willing to live this life. I, I don't live with that worry in America. I don't think any of us do. But, but many in the world do, and they're willing to face that head on. So you must ask yourself at some point, do I value my life more than my belief? Is my life more important than my belief? The third question we must ask ourselves, because this was Jesus' mission, is am I making disciples? Because we can easily, if we want to say, yes, I'm willing to give my life for it, and yes, I truly treasure Christ above all things, then that means we are going to follow his teachings. And that means among all things that he said, the last thing he said to his disciples was what? Go make disciples. This is a command for everyone. So if we say, yes, I treasure Christ above all things, and yes, I'm willing to die for it, that means we do this. That means we must give our lives, not necessarily in death. We give our lives to the process of making disciples, doing what Jesus told us to do. There is no denying that this is a very important question to answer to gauge our commitment to Jesus. You see, he told us to go, then he gave us the reassurance that he would be with us to the end of the age. He basically said, here's your job, I'm going to do it for you, but you just have to do this small part. I'll do all the rest. So are we willing to obey that? You see, we have to ask ourselves, are there people on this planet that are Christians because I exist? That sounds super blunt. And we know that God is who saves them. We understand that Jesus is who died for them. We can't save them ourselves. I'm not in any way getting a Messiah complex and saying, okay, you have to save these people. But it has been shown throughout Scripture that the process by which God saves them, because God is doing the saving, is by us sharing the gospel, evangelizing the lost, and showing them and making disciples. He tells us to go make disciples, so clearly there's an obedience factor. Are we sharing our faith? Are there people on the planet that can go, I'm a Christian because he exists. I'm a Christian because he or she told me about Jesus. Thank you to that person. Ultimately, thank you to God for saving me. You see, the people in the world that are scared for their lives in believing in Jesus usually aren't scared because they have faith. A lot of times they can kind of skate under the radar if they believe in Jesus. They just don't say anything about it. It is when they begin to share their faith that their lives are in danger because then they may turn other people to follow Jesus. And that's when people get into trouble. So are we willing to give our lives? In America, it may look like ridicule and being mocked and made fun of and not got, getting a job or, you know, losing friends or, or whatever it may be. The time may be coming where it gets much worse than that. And we have to answer these questions ahead of time. Are we willing to give our lives for Christ? Are we willing to walk into that war and do what God has told us to do and make disciples? We must believe in Jesus as the only way to salvation, so much so that we have a heart, a broken heart for those that are outside of faith in him we can't just look at lost people and go i'm good 
You got to fend for yourself. I did this. That's a, it's a terrible place to be when we start taking credit for our salvation and not having a broken heart for those that are outside of Jesus, knowing that hell does exist and that's where they're headed if we don't share the gospel with them. If someone doesn't share the gospel with them, this is going to take sacrifice. See, we have misconstrued what it means to follow Jesus so much that I'm not even sure we believe that anymore, that we believe it's going to take any real sacrifice. But to follow Jesus and to do what it takes to truly be his disciple is going to take an enormous sacrifice. It will be the greatest sacrifice you can make in this life. Now, if you remember what I said just a few minutes ago, I said that I was going to contend that it is not the greatest sacrifice that you can make. It is not the biggest price you can pay. It is not the most costly thing that you can do. And I still stand by that. Because there is one sacrifice you can make that is greater than following Jesus, and that is not following Jesus. See, following Jesus would be the greatest sacrifice we can make in this life, as it should be. He has died to save us. We owe it to him to give our lives to him as long as he gives us on this planet. But that is nothing to be compared with the eternity away from him if someone decides not to follow him. The sacrifice of this world, as Paul would say it, is, is the, the glories to be revealed are so much greater that I am willing to pay this price. But we have to realize the cost of non-discipleship is much greater than the cost of discipleship. The cost of not following Jesus is much greater than the cost of following Jesus. The cost of nominal Christianity, notice I didn't say atheism, the cost of nominal Christianity is far greater than the cost of true Christianity. We must feel the weight of these statements. We must feel the weight of what is being said there if we wish to follow Jesus to the point of making other informed and devoted disciples. You see, this, this sermon and these statements are not meant to scare you. This is not a fire and brimstone. I'm so scared of hell that I'm going to turn my life to Jesus. That is not what this is for. But we do need to grasp the gravity of the decisions that we and others make to follow or not follow Jesus. It is life or death, and it is eternal life or death. See, we're all going to make the greatest sacrifice that we can make for what we value most. Either we will value Christ over all of this world has to offer, and we will willingly forsake all else for him, or we will value this world above Christ, and we will willingly forsake our souls for more of what the world has to offer. But what we do know is that either way, it's going to take sacrifice. But what else we know is that the sacrifice that we are asked to make in this life will so be worth it. It is going to be a small price to pay when we see the glory that is to be revealed to us. Look at, look at what the Bible has to say about what awaits us if we are willing to pay this price. To, to count the cost of discipleship and to say, I'm in. I am all in. I am willing to pay that price. Listen to what it says in Revelation. This is various parts kind of put together. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said to, them, to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made, the, made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and they serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and He will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. So in light of this majesty that we see coming, and in light of the majesty that we see in Christ and his salvation that he provides in the Gospels, may we go from this place. May we count the cost of discipleship, and may each of us go from this place and live in complete dependence upon his grace. May we go from this place and live with reckless abandonment for his glory. And may we go from this place and live in radical obedience to his mission to make disciples of all nations. Because we know that it will be worth it. Because we know that he is worth it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just come to you this morning convicted for the times in my life that I have put things above you that I have not spoken out for you because someone may laugh. That I have not spoken out for you when it was in someone was in dire need because I didn't know what the consequences would be if I did. Or because I said, you know what, they're too far gone. God can't save them. Even if I didn't verbally say that, by not sharing, that is what I am saying. And I pray that myself and that everyone in this room would never say no for someone else. That we would boldly proclaim this gospel. That we would go into a lost and dying world and say whatever happens who cares it is a small price to pay to see hopefully another soul won for Christ hopefully another person who who can count the cost of following Jesus and decide to follow him anyway we know that you are the ones doing doing the the one doing the saving but i pray that we take your command to go and make disciples that we would not take that lightly, that we would listen to the words you are saying that, yes, I am going to save my people and nothing can stop that from happening, but the way that I'm going to do that is I'm going to send my people amongst the lost people, amongst people that need to hear this gospel. And I pray that we are the ones reaching up and saying, send me. Wherever it may go, whether it is across the street or across the ocean, Send me, Jesus, because there are lost people and it breaks my heart and I want them to come to know you. And then we leave the results up to you. But I pray that when we say we're going to leave the results up to God, that we don't say we're going to leave the execution up to God and throw our hands in the air and say, I'm going to do nothing because God's going to do what God's going to do. Because God is going to do what God is going to do. You are going to do what you are going to do. And yet you lovingly allow us to be a part of that. And I pray that we would not shirk that responsibility. That we would gladly go into the fray when the bullets are flying. 
And we would say that this is worth it. I have counted the cost and the glory that is to be revealed to me is, no, is not worthy of being compared to what I am paying in this life. And I pray we can all honestly say that and we can say that enough that we will leave this place and take this gospel to a lost and dying city, to a lost and dying neighborhood, to a lost and dying state, to a lost and dying family member. And that we will say to them, Jesus saves. Jesus is the only one who saves. Let me tell you about the salvation that he offers and the grace that he brings. We love you, Jesus. We thank you that it is by your power that any of this is made possible. We thank you for dying in our place. Now may we honor you by giving you our lives. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Stand with me this morning. We'll sing this as a song of prayer response to our God. Because I invite you to when I read that passage in Scripture, it poses a lot of questions. It can be a lot of uneasiness in God's call.